Hello, my friends. Welcome to another bonus episode. Today, I've got a follow-up for you with Tom Randall. And what you're listening to right now is the free teaser version. The full thing is available right now for patrons who support the podcast for $5 per month or more. If you choose to sign up for Patreon, that's an amazing way to support the Nugget Climbing Podcast. That is how I'm able to continue producing and making the podcast and chasing down new guests every week, and it's a huge help. So if you have the means and want to support the show, you can sign up for Patreon at patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing. There's a link right there in your podcast app for that, and that will get you access to tons of perks. So hopefully it feels like a win-win. There are now 31 follow-ups that have published with past guests from the show, and we typically will deep dive on a really interesting topic Or if it's a pro climber, we'll talk about something that they sent that maybe we had talked about in our first conversation. I do a follow-up with them to hear all the geeky details. So yeah, there's 31 of those. You'll have access to all of the follow-ups as long as you are a patron. And it's only five bucks a month. You'll also get access to ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to ads at the start of the podcast. And you can submit questions for guests who are coming up on the show. You've probably heard me ask listener questions to my guests, and those are coming from patrons who support the podcast. So in this conversation, this one is with Tom Randall from Lattice Training. Tom is a professional climber. You might remember him from the Wide Boys video. Him and his partner, Pete Whitaker, climbed the hardest off with crack in the world. And Tom has his own training company. He's one of the best coaches in the world at this point. He's worked with tons of climbers and coaches across the full spectrum of ability level. And he and his team have collected a tremendous amount of data on climbers, measuring their finger strength, measuring some of their other strength numbers and endurance numbers, and measuring that against how hard they climb and starting to find patterns and things like that. So... Tom is a wealth of information. He's been doing this stuff for a long time. He's gotten amazing results for himself and for all of his clients that he works with, including some of the top people in the world. And this conversation truly is one of the most valuable conversations that I've had so far on the podcast. I don't say that lightly. There is so much valuable information in this episode. This is a conversation that I would have killed to listen to when I was 20 years old and scouring the internet for clues as far as how to put my training together and how to get stronger and things like that. So yeah, I've been doing this stuff a long time myself and I still thought there were a ton of valuable nuggets for myself uh, in this conversation that I'm excited to play with. So this free teaser that you're about to listen to is the first 30 minutes of our conversation just to get you a feel for what follow-ups are all about and to give you a feel of what to expect from this conversation. And we ended up talking for about an hour and 45 minutes. So it's a full podcast. And like I said, there's so much good stuff in this full conversation. The topic of our conversation was how to program your training as a self-coached climber how to put all this stuff together. You guys have been learning all these amazing ideas and getting all this training inspiration from all these conversations on The Nugget. And what do you do with that? How do you integrate that into your life? What is relevant for your goals? And how do you take some of these training ideas and actually combine them with your climbing in a way that gets you stronger or gets you better, but 
that doesn't take away all the joy from climbing. We all want to climb and we all need to climb because it's, it's a skill sport and that's important. So that's the root of it. We talked about that topic for the full hour and 45 minutes, but we covered a lot of ground. We shared case studies. Uh, we talked about a couple specific people who I've had on the podcast. Um, you'll hear what I'm talking about if you listen to the full thing. But one of them is already one of the best climbers in the world and wants to level up his strength even more. So what does someone like that need to do to make lasting changes in their finger strength, for instance? And then on the flip side, another person was a high-level boulderer who transitioned to sport climbing. So we talked about what that looks like and what kind of a time commitment it takes to switch modes and things like that. I also asked Tom if he had advice for climbers in different circumstances. I talked to a lot of people who are stuck in a nine to five job and only have a couple weeks a year to get outside and climb on a, on a trip, on vacation. So we talked about what that type of person can do to get the most out of their training and to make sure that they are able to transfer all of their training to their performance. And on the flip side, we also talked about an example person who has chosen to live on the road full time or to live in an area where they can climb year round on rock. What do they need to do to train to get stronger if they're inspired by some hard project and they want to level up? You know, do they have to take an off season? Can they combine training with their climbing and still climb year round? What do those things look like? So that's some of the stuff we covered. There's so much good stuff in this conversation. I really hope you listen to it. But yeah, you'll get the first 30 minutes for free. And if you want to continue the conversation, you can go sign up for Patreon right now and finish the conversation. It just takes a few minutes to sign up for Patreon and you can cancel at any time. No questions asked. If something comes up and you need to conserve your finances, I totally get it. But anything you can do to help out the show truly does make a difference. So that's it. Thanks for tuning in to this bonus episode. And I hope you enjoy this free teaser with Tom Randall. Howdy. Hey, how are you, Tom? Yeah, good. Thanks you. Good. Excellent. Yeah. What's going on, man? Well, first question was, can you... Can you hear the screaming children in the background? <laughs> Let me listen. No. What about now? Nope. Zoom is doing its job. Okay, that's cool. Amazing. I can, I can hear Sophie very definitely crying downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Little glimpse into Tom's life behind the scenes. Yeah, it's um <clears throat> it's definitely a bit kind of uh, chaotic and maybe not, not probably, probably not very what like a lot of other pro climbers lives are like. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although some, some of the big names are heading that way, you know, we'll, we'll see if Adam Andra and Alex Honnold can keep pushing standards with kids. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Big, it's, it's a slow, changes. in reality, it's a slow drip mm. and basically you just over time it it just gets a bit harder and you're a little bit less motivated to like push against it it's doable but you have to be super motivated mm. and then like five years in you go oh i kind of can't be bothered on this particular thing anymore because i just don't want to fight against it for five years and then 
10 years down the line, you go, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. And you just slowly <laughs> don't do it. Mm. How old are so, your kids, Tom? Uh, they're 10 and 7. Okay. And I don't know this about you. What, where, to give us a sense of like when your hardest climbs have happened relative to having kids. Oh, uh, all of my hardest climbing has happened since I've had children. Amazing. Amazing. So that that is reassuring for people because my I climbed my first 8B. Uh, so what's that? 13D. Yep, you got it. One month after my first child was born. And then six months after I climbed my first 8C. Oh, wow. And and then it's just like, I haven't, I mean, I haven't climbed 9A. So mm. maybe I'll blame that on the kids. <laughs> How old were you when you did your first 8B? Uh, 31 years old. Okay. Damn, that's yeah. cool. That's that's encouraging as well. Mm. We've got time. I mean, it, took me, it took me five years to get to 7A. Okay, wow. Yeah, I'm not a very good climber. <laughs> well, that just speaks to your uh, your that just gives you more credibility with your training. That means you must really know how to get stronger <laughs> over the long term. That's awesome. Yeah, well, really, stubborn, really stubborn, <laughs> really stubborn. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing, man. Well, it's good to have you here again. Yeah, it's um, yeah, gonna look look forward to seeing what we can get into and uh what we can kind of pull out from value to all those listening and you know the the usual stuff because as you know i'm i like i like theory and i like methodology and all that sort of stuff but i'm most really interested in making sure it's practical for Mm. others to go away and as a coach i like i suppose educating and and saying how to do things with best practice totally yeah, totally. S- same. I mean, that's at the heart of what I'm always trying to get to with this podcast is how do I take this, these insights and make it actionable for myself and hopefully for as many people as possible listening. Um, so yeah, today's topic, tell me, tell me what it is that we're going to be talking about and why this felt like an important topic to cover. Is this something you get a lot of questions about or you just feel is, is missing, a missing piece of the training information that's so prevalent these days on the internet? Um, I suppose the, the the headline or the summary of what I'm keen to chat about really is all around this concept of self-coached climbers and the ability to take the pretty huge amount of information, which is very readily available on the internet or in books nowadays, and take the methods and the theories and the ideas of what you can do within your training and apply those into building a basic functioning program for yourself. So really, I want to get people to the point where they can walk away from this podcast and go, okay, I grasp the starting point of a training program, the middle, the mess, and what I need to do roughly, and then what should it look like at the end if you've built something reasonably effective? Because yes, it'd be great if people come and, you know, 
get a training program from Lattice that's written by a coach or uh, do a Crimp Plus uh, skill template program within the app. But I also appreciate that there's loads of people out there that go, I just want to do this myself and I want to program and put everything else by my own power, which I know is really fun to do as well. And it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to yeah give people the framework under which to do that. Awesome. Awesome. So yeah, just a deep dive today on programming your self-coached training for climbing. And and yeah, a lot of people, um, you know, something that's so common with self-coached climbers is they listen to a podcast, like one of, you know, the, the conversations I've had on The Nugget, and something specific stands out to them and they want to try to add just one thing to their normal climbing. You know, maybe they're like a three or four day a week gym climber but they've really noticed that they could improve at this one thing. And so they they add just one element of their training. So I think it'd be interesting. Um, we can start at kind of the top level and just get, you know, wh- where you start with an athlete that's brand new to this stuff. But I think it'd be interesting to cover how you would program like an entire training program that covers a, a bunch of different things towards a big goal versus how you would integrate a little bit of training into someone's normal climbing if they just want to kind of test the waters and, you know, for for instance, try out like a six-week hangboard block and add that to their climbing just to get a little bit of finger strength and how you think about all that stuff. But yeah, maybe to start, when you are talking about programming training, what are the biggest picture items? Like what are the foundational things that you start with when you're talking to an athlete about this stuff or a coach about this stuff for the first time? Well, I think the first thing to do is importantly, you and you've identified it yourself is say, look at the big picture items, the real foundational elements, because the vast majority of individuals and coaches that I've trained over the years, they always want to go into the detail very quickly when they start Mm. putting a and so keep the hell out of the whole detail thing until right to the end. That's so important to, I want to overstate that because I've done lots of training sessions with people where after 15 minutes, they're in some really cool bit of theory and you go, no, 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 headline, summary, foundation, <laughs> big picture. So that's correct. Um, but in terms of the, the ordering of the big picture approach, I think the first thing that most people want to do is get some kind of objective view on one, where are they right now in terms of a climber, an athlete, however you want to term that. So that's what are you currently doing in your everyday life of climbing activity? Are you someone who climbs once a week, five times a week? Are you mostly indoors? Are you on a hangboard? Are you at the crag? to build up a realistic, objective profile of who you are as a person. That's really important. You want to get it down on paper and be able to keep referring back to that. And then secondly, is that you want to understand the relative strengths and weaknesses that you have within your personal ability as a climber. And that's ideally across skill set, so technique, the physical side of things, and then also the mental, psychological mindset side of things. And the easiest way, I think, for people to do that, if they want to do it on a low budget, but end up with a basic strength and weakness assessment that's practical and actually works pretty well, is get together a group of maybe four to eight 
friends who know you reasonably well and climb with you reasonably regularly and ask them on a piece of paper privately so you can't see the results until the end and ask them to rank your top three strengths and top three weaknesses as a climber. Mm. And they can go for any category you want. You just have to ask them to define those, what they know about you as a climber. Get them all to write it down on a piece of paper. It's an amazing thing to do on trips on rainy days. And then collect together your pieces of paper, open them up and look at what are the common messages across four to eight climbers who are your friends. Because I pretty much guarantee you that your close friends actually know you very well mm. and you will get answers that are quite meaningful on that front oh i love that that makes me so curious i can't wait to i want to do that <laughs> i'm like nervous Amazing. nervous too but i i i think that'd be so valuable to do that with people i climb with that's a great idea i i still have notes from some of the ones that i did with my friends back in like 2006 2007 and I was shocked by a few of the things they said, but mm. but shocked in the way that it kind of hurt because I went, oh, <laughs> oh you're right. You know it's true. Yeah. Oh. Like, <laughs> I promise you, I was training all the things that I kind of shouldn't have done because they were mm. my strengths. Really, and I was ignoring these weaknesses. But seeing four or five friends all say, your short end power endurance, you know, things that take 10 to 15 moves that are really hard, is terrible. Mm. Uh, you're right. It is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a great example. I'm curious, any other examples that stand out for you? Anything you still remember from that 2006 or 2007 timeframe? Oh, finger strength was finger my strength. other one. Okay. Um, back then I could barely hang a 20 mil edge two handed at body weight. Wow. I would shake. I remember doing it. <laughs> yeah. You, wow. That's also amazing. You've come a hell of a long way as far as that goes. I have that image frozen in my mind of you. I don't know if it's Ollie standing next to you or what, but you're balled up on that, you know, that Beastmaker center edge with like a five pound or 10 pound weight in your other hand. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, incredible. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely the product of plenty of training and being incredibly week initially mm. and it was because i put a high degree of focus and trusted the things that people had told me were were wrong and this i suppose mm. takes me to the summary headline concept of when you when you have identified all those things as an individual that you might be looking to work on and your your weaknesses or your areas of potential have you want to term it is you want to then say I can only realistically work on one to three things in a particular training cycle and keep that kind of focus on it. So say, yes, I can work on finger strength and upper body power, or I can work on my roof technique and my on-site and confidence but be quite focused in any one training cycle because I've definitely seen poor results from training programs of those that identify eight things to do mm. and they go, I'm so psyched. I should just work all of these over the next six months. And they just end up with no focus. It's better to do two really well than do six 
in a mediocre manner. You'll have a more meaningful result. Totally, totally. And it makes sense hearing you give those examples why those might be good pairs. You know, finger strength with upper body power, you can train those in a complementary manner. They don't really take away from each other too much. Same with steep climbing and on-siding confidence. Um, do you have, can you give us examples of pairs that, that you would want to avoid, like things that would be mutually exclusive in a way? You know, they, they take away from one another. Uh, I'd say the the two that would, two pairs that would be very difficult to work are to work strength and power endurance in the same cycle or to work endurance and power endurance in the same cycle. So the two mm. two parts of the kind of energy system, which are, are next to each other, if you work them together, it, you end up with this weird blend of something in the middle and it's it's not particularly effective. So you can work very high-end strength and really low-end base endurance to work together. That works okay. But a combination of stuff in the middle and next to each other, it, I don't see it as being hugely successful in, in most in most cases. Oh, that's Yeah, that's good to hear because I, I guess that would have been intuitive to me as far as the strength and the power endurance because the power endurance just takes so long to recover from and it's going to zap your, you know, your high end. But I would have thought that the low end endurance and the power endurance would have been a decent pair. So you think it's better to to avoid that combination? Um, yeah, because if you're trying to develop and improve your power endurance, what you're really talking about here is refining your your base capacity for aerobic work, so that endurance work, and you're refining it to the demands of your sport. So whether that's a 15 volt sport route. A twenty-five, a thirty, a thirty-five meter, not not bolts. Sorry, I meant meters. So mm. fifteen, twenty-five, thirty-five meter, and you're refining it to the demands of what you're going for. And again, for the angle that you're doing it, so it doesn't really make sense that you'd be working all the kind of capacity style type work, but then trying to refine it to the mm. demands of your event at the same time. It it just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the same thing again is, uh, an, another coupling that doesn't work particularly well. And I've seen some, uh, strength athletes get this wrong and it will often be for the boulders is they'll go, oh, I really want to feel really powerful, um, peak performance at the moment. So I'm just going to be working very, very high, um, intensity work. So what I'll do is I'll do power work. So power pull work, um, and they might do it on a bar or a campus board. But then they'll do it with a load of eccentric, so lowering that kind of opening up on the movement, um, work at exactly the same time, which is slower and more controlled because they logically, they go, oh, I've read that eccentric work is the way to load the muscle at the highest possible amount of force, which is true, but they're very conflicting in terms of the adaptation and the stimulus that you get for eccentric high loading versus power, which is effectively much lower intensity, but very high velocity or high speed. Mm. So those don't work very well together as well. Okay, that's interesting because I've, what are your thoughts on complex training as far as that goes? Because that's something that I've seen people play with a lot within climbing and outside of climbing. Like an example, a couple examples would be pairing a max finger dead hang, like a 10 second dead hang with campus doubles, something very quick. Um, or something that sprinters do 
I think this is a Charlie Francis thing, is do heavy deadlifts paired with box jumps. Do you think, well, yeah, what are your thoughts on that complex idea? I think the jury is probably still out on that one. Okay. And it's, I can't see a, a massive reason for why it wouldn't work with certain individual athletes if they've got to the point where in the potential of what they're achieving with their training, they're just constantly plateauing and they've, they've got very high lows and they need to play around with different things or they've got a coach that knows their athlete very well. That might be worthwhile diving into kind of more experimental stuff. But I mean, my, I, I myself, I've worked with loads of athletes for a long time and I don't even feel like I have enough experience to say whether I would consistently use that with mm. my mid-tier climbers. So I, I think it's probably like a jury's out situation okay. with that. And maybe I'm maybe I'm getting us too far into the weeds, <laughs> diving like diving straight for those details. Yeah, <laughs> always everyone does it. Yeah, they always does. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Um, I wanted to ask one quick clarification that just came to mind about this. You know, collecting information from your friends. It seems like it'd be important to leave it really blank, like let them just write whatever comes to mind versus giving them categories to choose from. What are your thoughts on that? Is it just like a blank piece of paper? Yeah, I think it's best done as a blank piece of paper exercise because you will, if you force people to write about just the physical nature, you might find that some of your friends have absolutely no view on the physical nature of your performance they might be but they might be really capable with the mindset stuff mm. so in a way it ends up as being a filter for the opinions of your friends which are most valid so your friend who's very good with psychology will tend to give you uh. you know identify things on that side someone who's very good at physical training will identify on that side so it gives you i think a, a more finely tuned picture with better expertise if you go that way okay Awesome. I love it. All right. So um, one of the things I was most curious about, that seems like it's the next step, but you know, let me know if I'm jumping ahead, if we missed anything, then just let me know and we can backtrack and, and fill in the gaps. But it seems like the next step is to talk about, you know, general programming, like, you know, given that you want to focus on one or two things at a time, um, how do you educate newer climbers or newer climbers that are newer to training or new coaches in putting this stuff all together? Do you like to start with something periodized and, you know, do you have a way of, of moving climbers through that over the course of a training season versus doing blocks and kind of doing more of a rotation and, and touching on more things within, you know, a, a few month block? Um, is there an amount of time that you try to commit to with someone who's new to training that wants to, you know, really test the waters to make sure that they're investing enough in it to get something out of it. What are your thoughts on the overarching kind of structure as far as where to begin with training? In general, you want to take a almost like a backwards approach. So you take the timeline that you have to work on. And most people that's either a good part of the year where the conditions get really good in their local area or they have a trip planned for part of the year. And then, so when you look at that part of the year and the goals that you have on that, you want to then put on one side, what does your goal, your project, your aim look like? And what are the demands of that? 
And how does that match up with your friend's view and your history as a climber of where you're at? So how how disjointed are you? Are you aiming for a 513 on-site, but right now you're actually on-siting 12Ds quite regularly? Or are you trying to flash your first V11, but your best ever flash was V8 in mm. this year's? You've got a little bit of a timeline that you need to work on versus where you are now versus where you want to be. And then once you've understood that, it's to work backwards across that timeline from the goal and say, what is realistic to achieve towards my goal in the time frame that I actually have? And if you work backwards from that and you start to just apply, in this sense, you just have to apply some intuition in terms of the kind of improvements that you'll see. Um, because every every athlete's different to how quickly they respond to these forms of training. If it feels unrealistic for that time frame, then normally you need to move your goals down and make them a little bit more achievable, which is a good thing because it makes it more realistic. And once you have a point where you have a realistic matching of that time scale, so the end point and the start, is that you just want to block out periods on an overview of when are you firstly going to have your your rest weeks and you're going to do those cycles of harder work and then recovery and then also you've got to plan in on a very high level view when your holidays and work commitments or travel family etc fit in that plan and also put those in really really early Mm. so Two items, high level, is does your timeline look realistic in terms of what you want to achieve compared to where you are, compared to where you want to be? And then make sure that you put in right at the start all those immovable blocks like rest weeks and work, travel, conferences, etc. Because everything else around, do I use block periodization? Do I use concurrent periodization? So where you're doing working strength and endurance at the same time, for example, are all complete side points unless you can dial that basic framework of how your calendar looks and whether it's realistic for your goals. Um, Because again, people will get dragged into the detail of going, oh, I want to know what's the best form of periodization to, to use. Honestly, they're all fairly effective if you do them really well. But certain things will be more successful if you just get the basics, mm. which is timeline and immovable objects in your calendar. Get mm. them in straight away. That's great. Yeah, that's great. I'd, I'd love to hear, do you have any recommendations for those rest weeks? You know, do you have um, guidelines for how often those should happen? Yeah, I, I would say the the industry standard, more or less for climbers, is around three weeks of hard work and one week of relative rest. And what I mean by hard work is that the loading for you is high enough that you feel like you're being pushed and extended and stretched as an, as an athlete. And this can be technical, psychological, or physical. Mm. All of those match up with that model. And then in your relative rest week, it doesn't really want to be a full game over, I'm just going to sit on the couch and do nothing and watch Netflix. It's more like cut the total amount that you put into there 
by around 50%, maybe a little bit more. And that's what I mean by the, the relative rest. Um, so a, an example of that would be if you're in your working weeks climbing four days a week and you do a fingerboard session every other session, in your rest week, you might climb twice a week and just do one fingerboard session. Most people go, I'll do nothing on my rest week. Mm. I don't actually think that's the best practice. Keeping the kind of the engine ticking over tends to work out better for people. Okay. And what are your thoughts on intensity during that rest week? Should that main, should that stay at the same level of as your previous three weeks of training? Yeah, good, good question, actually. Um, across the breadth of intermediate, advanced, and elite level climbers, I think the intensity can be kept high. So really, really good quality work, but you massively back off on the volume. So you do a lot less. You stay way away from fatigue in your sessions. You don't tend to fail so much. And you just generally feel like you're you're polishing the diamond as such mm. in just keeping it ticking over, finishing fresh. Mm. But in beginner climbers or people who are doing maybe their first ever training cycle, I would suggest that for those individuals, they drop the intensity a little as well. And in particular, I would um, move any high intensity work in their rest week to having zero failure in any sets and reps. Mm. And the reason for this is that one of the biggest structural, so talking about actually changing the or affecting the structure of the soft tissues is this failure element where you go to the point where you actually can't complete a rep or you're falling out of a hang or you can't hold a lock anymore. The recovery time from that type of work is quite a bit higher. So try and cut that down in that rest week just because you're already you know, pushing your body pretty hard, asking it to do its first training cycle. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, I want to dig into some, let, let's just make up some theoretical examples and um, we can fill in a little bit of context around this. And uh, the first the first example hypothetical I want to bounce off you is like, let's say we're taking someone who has a clear off season. It's winter. They have three months before spring conditions, really good conditions for their local crag or whatever it is, or a trip. So they have like three months. Would you suggest them focusing on those one to two things for the entirety of that time or, you know, focus on one or two of them for a block for, for one of those four week blocks with three weeks of hard and then a rest and then rotate through and, and touch on more things over the course of that longer time frame. What are your thoughts on that? I think I'd probably default to saying that in the first instance, as long as the, per the climber isn't very injury prone or has a history of constantly overtraining, overreaching with their with their work, would be to concentrate and focus on one or two items. Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed that teaser with Tom. Once again, the full version of this conversation is an hour and 45 minutes. So you just listened to the first half hour. There's about an hour and 15 minutes more of this conversation and it was super valuable stuff the whole time. We didn't bullshit at all. It was just really talking through different circumstances, giving context, 
using different types of people as examples and talking all about how to program our training and get the most out of our training. So if you want to finish the episode, you can do that right now by signing up for Patreon. It's $5 per month, and it's an amazing way to support the regular podcast. And you get a ton of perks. You get a bunch of follow-ups to listen to. You get ad-free episodes, and you can submit questions for upcoming guests on the show. All of that, you can go to patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing. There's a link right there in your podcast app, and it just takes a few minutes to sign up. You can try it out. If you change your mind, you can cancel at any time. No questions asked, so there really is no risk and no downside. And that's it, my friends. I appreciate you all. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you on Monday for another regular episode. Like we do it.